You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. An Apache vulnerability is being used to install ransomware. Exploitation of a Citrix vulnerability in the wild. The AP sustains a DDoS attack. HHS reaches a settlement in a HIPAA data breach incident. More evidence of OSINT's reach. Andrea Little-Limbago from Interos discusses the SEC and disclosure rules. In our Solutions Spotlight, N2K's Simone Petrella and Rick Howard speak with Ben Rothke about whether there really is an information security jobs crisis. And Microsoft draws a lesson from Russia's war. Cyber defense now has the advantage over cyber offense. I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire Intel briefing for Friday, November 3rd, 2023. Huntress and Rapid7 have observed exploitation of a remote code execution vulnerability affecting Apache ActiveMQ. The flaw is being used to deploy the Hello Kitty ransomware. Apache released patches for the vulnerability on October 25th, and Rapid7 says the exploitation began two days later on October 27th. Rapid7 reported Wednesday, The threat actors' attempts at ransomware deployment were somewhat clumsy. In one of the incidents Rapid7 observed, there were more than half a dozen unsuccessful attempts to encrypt assets. The vulnerability, which has a CVSS score of 10, can allow a remote attacker with network access to a broker to run arbitrary shell commands by manipulating serialized class types in the OpenWire protocol to cause the broker to instantiate any class on the class path. Huntress wrote yesterday, Exploitation for this attack is trivial. There's a Metasploit module that automates exploitation for this attack. The Huntress team confirms that this module works like a charm against vulnerable instances of ActiveMQ. The Citrix bleed vulnerability affecting Netscaler ADC and Netscaler Gateway remains under active exploitation. Citrix issued patches for the flaw early last month. Netscaler has offered advice on mitigation. Mandiant has been researching the risk and this morning updated its research into the exploitation, stating... Mandiant is currently tracking four distinct uncategorized groups involved in exploiting this vulnerability. We have observed some lower degrees of confidence overlaps in post-exploitation stages among these UNC groups, like using the same recon commands and utilities available on Windows. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Office for Civil Rights has reached a $100,000 HIPAA settlement with a Massachusetts medical management company, Doctors Management Services reported a data breach to HHS on April 22, 2019, stating that around 206,000 individuals were affected when their network server was infected with GandCrab ransomware. The breach, which occurred on April 1, 2017, went undetected until December 24, 2018, when ransomware was used to encrypt their files. An OCR investigation revealed potential failures in risk analysis insufficient monitoring of health information systems, 
and a lack of policies to protect electronic protected health information, indicating non-compliance with HIPAA security rule requirements. Turning to some apparent news from Russia's hybrid war against Ukraine, the Associated Press has reported that its site, apnews.com, was intermittently unavailable Tuesday as it underwent a flood of traffic during what appears to have been a DDoS attack. Anonymous Sudan, a nominal hacktivist organization that's actually a front group for Russian intelligence and security services, announced in its Telegram channel that it intended to disrupt Western media, and informed speculation holds it likely that this group was responsible for the attack on the AP. But the AP itself says it's been unable to conclusively attribute the incident to anonymous Sudan. In fairness, hacktivist auxiliaries do a great deal of bragging. They've just claimed to have hit PayPal in a test, the Cyber Express reports. There are also some signs, according to Falcon Feeds, that anonymous Sudan may currently be pestering Yahoo News, Their site was down briefly, but is now back up. So, in this case of the AP, if you bet on form, it's probably Anonymous Sudan. Open Source Intelligence, or OSINT, has shown its value in both of the major wars currently being fought, the war between Russia and Ukraine and the conflict between Israel and Hamas. News organizations were able to extract a tolerably good picture of the Russian order of battle on the eve of the invasion from pictures posted to social media by Russians innocently showing trains loaded with armored vehicles passing through their towns en route to staging areas. Similar things are happening in the war between Hamas and Israel. NPR describes, in the course of reporting Israel's ground operations into Gaza, how such sources enable observers to track action on the ground. The principal sources of information in Gaza have been overhead imagery provided by commercial satellites with a timeliness and resolution formerly available only to the best-equipped nation-states, and social media, video, reports, audio, and so on. Neither overhead imagery nor social media content can't be naively accepted as ground truth, but it represents information that can be sifted, assessed, and analyzed. The New York Times provided an example of how they did this, albeit a little slowly, in the case of the explosion at the Gaza hospital, which the Times now thinks was caused by a wayward rocket launched against Israel from Gaza. Some of the analysis depends upon background knowledge, historical or geographical awareness, and finally the esoteric but increasingly available skills of image interpretation. Microsoft, in announcing its Secure Future initiative, sees Russia's hybrid war as having demonstrated that the advantage in cyberspace has swung from the offense to the defense. The company says, The war in Ukraine has demonstrated the tech sector's ability to develop cybersecurity defenses that are stronger than advanced offensive threats. Ukraine's successful cyber defense has required a shared responsibility between the tech sector and the government, with support from the country's allies. It is a testament to the coupling of public sector leadership with corporate investments and to combining computing power with human ingenuity. And Redmond thinks that AI promises even more to the defenders, stating, As much as anything, it provides inspiration for what we can achieve at an even greater scale by harnessing the power of AI to better defend against new cyber threats. We note in passing and full disclosure that Microsoft is a CyberWire partner. The company has committed to improving cyber defense in these ways. 
They say, first, we are taking new steps to use AI to advance Microsoft's threat intelligence. Second, we are using AI as a game changer for all organizations to help defeat cyber attacks at machine speed. Third, we are securing AI in our services based on our responsible AI principles. So, in Redmond's view, AI is likely to further enhance the defense and so prove an ultimately benign family of technologies if properly managed. Let's hope so. Coming up after the break, Andrea Little Limbago from Enteros discusses the SEC and disclosure rules. In our solution spotlight, N2K's Simone Petrella and Rick Howard speak with Ben Rothke about whether there really is an information security jobs crisis. Stay with us. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Ben Rothke works in information security at TAPAD. He writes book reviews for the RSA blog and is a founding member of the Cloud Security Alliance and the Cybersecurity Canon. In today's Solution Spotlight, N2K's Simone Petrella and Rick Howard speak with Ben Rothke about whether or not there really is an information security jobs crisis. We spend a lot of time on this segment talking with experts about ways they're addressing the cyber talent crisis. But today I want to tackle the issue, is the talent shortage really as bad as we think? To have this discussion, I'm joined today by Rick Howard, the CyberWire's Chief Analyst, and Ben Rocky, Senior Information Security Manager at Experian. Hi, gents. Thanks for joining. Hello. Hey, Simone. Thanks for doing this. All right. Well, let's just jump right in. Um, ben, I know you've tackled this question. So is there really a cyber job shortage? 
Yes, you know, but but I think you know, with a caveat, there's a lot of reports, you know, p- press releases, etc., about millions of uh, of cybersecurity jobs. Um, so the, the short answer is yes, it, it's definitely it's a great career path. There's a lot of openings, but it's not that uh, people could take a, uh, a a crash course, get a high paying job in information security. Darn! I wish. Really, I'm shocked. Shocked, I said. Okay. Um, I get calls, you know, weekly from parents, from people. I want, you know, um, they've got college-age kids. There's other people in IT that want to get into information security. And uh, it's a great career. There's a lot of opportunity. But once again, it's not this magic bullet where you could uh, take a boot camp and companies are going to be desperate uh, for your services. Uh, I think that's the difference. I think one misnomer is, you know, thinking you could just do information security. Information security is built on top of IT. Information security is like a, a medical specialty. First you do internal medicine, then you do your specialty. Ah, you're stealing no an analogy. I've analogy. used that analogy for years, Ben, where we're simpatico no. on that one. I thought you brought up something really interesting, which is that like the numbers are endemically overreported. And It's something I have noticed in some of the things that we've seen in the data sets and something that's always struck me. I know even when I think about the amount of federal cyber and defense cyber jobs that are being bid in the DMV alone, you know, I think about every contractor that's putting out recs for the same job postings. If we're using that as the data point, I'm like, we've just quadruple counted because everyone's putting out postings for the same singular role, it's just getting replicated four times. Yeah, I think the number is, last time I looked, was 3.5 million job openings, right? And uh, uh, and it seems to grow every year. These are not entry-level jobs. Uh, what we're, But I think that's our fault. We're the security professionals here. And for years, we've insisted that we're not going to hire newbies for a specific task. We've insisted that these new employees have, you know, 20 years experience and 17 certs. And therefore, we don't hire them. I'm wondering what you think about that is that we could be very judicious here if we were smart about hiring newbies coming off the street uh, and give them very uh, specific things to do. And I wonder if that fixes the problem. Yeah, I mean, it's I think it's a there's a lot of uh, issues, uh, a lot of things involved. And even getting back to that number, even, you know, I heard figure, you know, a million job openings in, in the U.S. I mean, if you think about it, you know, that would mean almost like 1% of Americans uh, are in information security. Um, information security is uh, it's broad, it's deep. So there's uh, a lot of things going on. The short answer is there is no quick fixes. It's just there's the, the supply, there's the demand, uh, there's training aspects. Um, and so there's a lot there. But yeah, I said there's, there's a lot of uh, different things going on. And there is no one thing to fix this shortage. Right. I'm, I'm curious, though, because I it really sticks with me, too, in the work we've done around this idea of the like short-term realities and companies that kind of focus on, here's what I need yesterday, and so I don't have the advantage or the luxury to invest in those training programs or those upskilling programs, versus the reality that if we don't do those things, there is no way to ever grow this pool of talent, regardless of what the actuarial number of shortfall of jobs is. So what has to happen culturally? And in I assume these large companies, they've got to lead the charge from my perspective. In the old days, when you used to pay bills with a, in an envelope from the, the AAA, um, their envelope said, uh, 
I think, you know, auto safety doesn't cost, it pays. Um, I think so too with information security. It doesn't cost, it pays. It is an investment. And, um, you know, there was a... Yeah, but Ben, we we don't treat it that way as an industry. You know, because, you know, my experience is uh, when we train employees, existing employees, we never do it with a idea that we're going to improve the team. That's not the primary consideration, right? It is, we're going to, it's usually a perk. We're going to improve how well the team performs on our particular strategy. And that's a culture shift for all of us because none of us do it that way. Yeah, as I said, you know, there's a lot. I mean, we need to invest in the people. You need to invest in the products and the technology and processes in all of these. Mm-hmm. So, it, 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 as it is, I think information security in some ways is really, you know, not that different from IT, from society as a whole. But as I said, it, it's gotten to that point. You really can't ignore it anymore. I mean, I mean, in the last week, there's Clorox, there's Caesars, there's MGM. So companies are slowly getting it, but it's like the proverbial uh, aircraft carrier. You know, these things are, are huge and big and, you know, you want to make a change and a turn, you know, it does take a while. But uh, even with the new SEC guidance, that's changing things significantly. So um, in some ways, information security, we're inherently, um, we always focus on uh, on risk and you always see, uh, you know, the dangers and everything. So I think there is a lot of, uh, a lot of good things going on. Information security is now at the board level. There's a lot of investment, uh, but it's still yeah, but the, things take a while culture, to to fix. The culture change, though, Ben, that I'm talking about, right, is that when you have a budget for training, and it's tra- it's and it's earmarked for you know career progression. Okay, that's the first thing that gets cut. No, and and Rick, I think you really said an operative word. It's what? How is it tied to a strategy? Just having a budget, it's easy to cut a budget for training when it's a perk because that's what it's viewed as is a perk. And so you take away the perk because you do that. If it's not tied to a talent strategy, a people strategy. Or, uh, you know, not to toot my own horn, but a first principle cybersecurity strategy, right? So if, you're, if your strategy is, I don't know, resilience, like it is here at the CyberWire, okay, we need people to know how to do resilience. And I could take uh, budget decisions, resource decisions to the, you know, to Simone, my boss, and say, you spend $3,000 on this, I can buy down risk with that, right? As opposed to, you know, it's Kevin getting a you know a pat on the back because he did a good job last week. Yeah, I think that gets you know into the another issue. You know, it is creating the you know return on security investment. If you're familiar with fair factor analysis of information risk, that's a great method to show and quantify that. But even even getting those good numbers, that's an effort in and of itself. But uh, yeah, a lot of things can be cut. You know, no one says, "Hey, times are tough." You know, we've got to uh, cut back on electricity. You know, we've got to cut back on plumbing uh, because, you know, you can't do that. Um, and so to information security really is no different. I mean, uh, right. But, you know, it's but it's it's a really good point when you think about the amount of budgets that's spent on especially the operating budget spent on headcount. That is by far the largest amount of budget spent is ultimately on people. So I want to leave us with this parting question, I'll give you both a chance to to kind of answer it. As a takeaway, if you were to identify one thing in sort of the low-hanging fruit that could start to change this culture paradigm and start to focus the industry on the long-term solutions, what would be your first starting point? I know what mine would be, but Ben, what do you think? Oh, (laughs) 
Just, um, I, mean, I just say, you know, uh, you know, stop and, you know, figure, you know, really understand, you know, what your IT issues are, you know, what your needs are, uh, what your goals are, um, and understand how to, you know, get security involved in that. So I'll piggyback off that, right? I would call that decide what your strategy and tactics are. Um, but the first step in solving this problem, I think, is being able to assess your current workforce on how good they are at pursuing those strategies and tactics. So you can make a decision about training resources in the future. That's what I would do. That's great. Well, Ben, Rick, thank you so much for joining for this discussion. Always a ton of fun. Thanks, Simone. That was fun. Thank you. That's Ben Rothke speaking with N2K's Simone Petrella and Rick Howard. There's a lot more to this conversation. If you want to hear more, head on over to the CyberWire Pro and sign up for Interview Selects, where you'll get access to this and many more extended interviews. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Andrea Little-Limbago. She is Senior Vice President of Research and Analysis at Enteros. Andrea, it is always great to welcome you back. Uh, I want to touch base on geopolitics, something you and I uh, talk about uh, regularly, uh, but also how that intersects with cyber, of course, but the folks in the C-suite. Uh, what sort of insights do you have on that? Yeah, no, thanks. And it, you know, there, there are areas that tend to be disconnected in, mo- in most conversations, but what we're seeing at the C-suite level is a growing push both for greater cybersecurity domain expertise as well as geopolitical expertise. And that, you know, unfortunately... Uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, kind of, you know, what was a, the prompt, the you know, forcing function on, on that regard. Mm. However, that you know, some of that discussion had started earlier, following the start of the U.S.-China trade war, but wasn't necessarily taken as seriously uh, as it is now. And it's been a good, you know, seven years since then. So the the various kinds of sanctions and regulations and so forth really have just continued at a rapid pace. If nothing else, it's a compliance issue in many regards for some of these companies that the C-suite needs to be aware of. But it is thinking about, you know, how, how can you build a, a resilient company in these times of shifts and looking across, you know, the major shifts that are going on to really you know, shape this new normal. You know, clearly climate change will be one of them. The technological revolution that we're, that's underway is one of them. But the geopolitical landscape is shifting in ways that we have not seen before decades. And that is something that's starting to raise much more awareness. And we have folks on the board are starting to ask, how how are you trying to, how are you building your company to be resilient against some of those shifts? The the folks I speak to, you know, always emphasize that uh, you have to approach the C-suite in the language they understand, which tends to be risk, Um, material risk to the business. Um, and yet everything, it seems these days flows through cyber. I mean, even, uh, you know, the, the social aspects of social media, you know, the, uh, we're coming up on an election season here and that, you know, that affects everything as well. Are we seeing a heightened awareness from the C-suite to focus on those elements? I'd say a growing. I'm not sure I'd say heightened yet. Okay. I, I, think, <laughs> I, I wouldn't enough. go quite that far. <laughs> right. and, I, and I think to your point, I mean, and so much of the geopolitical politics and the risk associated with it are manifest through cyber. And that, mm-hmm. That's why we see so much of that interconnected. And so I, I think you know, there's a rising awareness. You know, I think the World Economic Forum did a, you know, 
what they their findings from earlier this year that you know they did a polling of a bunch of you know, executives and their best estimate was that there will be some sort of cast catastrophic cyber event in the next two years that is geopolitically motivated and take that with a grain of salt but it just shows that there is a heightened awareness at a at a minimum whether they're actually doing something is a little bit different about it but those that the, the connectivity between geopolitics and cybersecurity and then that having an impact on the businesses is something that just is, is growing in awareness those are questions that are starting to pop up we're hearing them a whole lot more and so we're starting to see some shifts in, in, in that regard and I think what's interesting, and you, you mentioned social media, and that's, you almost think about that as being like the front end risks that are, that we see like social media and some of the information and all, and the various kind of, uh, we've, we've seen disinformation campaigns targeted at companies already mm-hmm. numerous times. So that's one component of it and the data security. And then some of the, the back end risks could be the, you know, the hardware that we're seeing right now that's being in the, in the companies. And there's actually a really good book along the lines that, that separates it by, Front-end risk and back-end risk for cyber and geopolitics. That um, it's called the Wires of War by hmm. by Jacob Helberg. That I'd recommend. And I, I, I really like that framing because it is sort of the software risk and then the hardware risk, and then the data that goes along with it. And I don't think many companies are thinking about it that way quite yet. And you know, compliance is forcing some of them to. When you have something like Huawei technology that is not allowed to be within your infrastructure, that's a right. forcing function on the hardware side. And then even some of the some of the software apps, but even just you know, data security, data privacy laws are forcing as well. But I think they're, they're, it still is really nascent. I think when it's getting into business discussions. Well, and, and we're seeing you know shifts of emphasis on bringing some core manufacturing back to the United States. You know, chip manufacturing, things like that. And the, but then uh, in the next breath, you hear the folks leading that effort saying, "Well, we don't have enough people here who are." trained. And so it's going to take us longer than we thought it would. Strong geopolitical implications there. No, and it's huge. I mean, I was just reading, I think the other day that um, the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing, the biggest semiconductor um, company, was building a, a plant in Arizona. And then that's getting delayed for, the, for that reason, for inability to find all the labor that they need. So there are, it's, it's one of the things, that's, it's way easier said than done. But we are seeing the company shift in that regard. But we're also, it's interesting, I'm also seeing in, in some cases out of governments or corporate executives talking about the risk on one side and then in a, in a different forum talking about how they're reinvesting, say, in China and growing a labor force or you know, growing a, like a new plant there. And so it's very hard to see. You can't have it both ways. And I think some companies are trying to have it both ways right now because they've been able to. And that's, mm. you know, especially in the area of supply chains, you know, they've grown globally absent any thought about geopolitics for, you know, that's how that was. Globalization, as it expanded over the over the last few decades, really didn't take geopolitics into consideration, and, and now it has to. So it's a really it's a, it's a, it's a big mindset shift that I think is slowly coming around, and for sure, some industries are are thinking about it a lot more than others. Yeah, I, I just think in my day to day life. I mean, for all of us, the the number of items, consumer items, our, our mobile devices, our televisions, our t- everything that comes through China, and so. You think about a company like Apple, who we all rely on, you know, for even if you don't have an Apple device, you know someone who does. They can't just pivot and, and find another manufacturer to with the scale and uh, uh, precision and you know all the things that they've come to expect that China can provide. Yeah, no, I agreed. And then even if you, going down to the materials that go into those uh, technologies, the critical minerals, that's really mm. becoming another 
uh, area of discussion and dispute between uh, China and, say, Australia, the U.S., European countries. And so that also becomes some, another area of concern is where, if we're trying to decouple, where do you get the, the critical minerals needed to create the technologies? Where do you suppose we're headed here? Are we, are we on a trajectory of, for the short term, uh, increased tension? Or are we at some sort of equilibrium? Where, where do you suppose we are? Uh, you know, honestly, I think a lot of it depends. I mean, we're at a new equilibrium for sure following yeah. Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But with regard to China, I, so much depends on what China does towards Taiwan. I think we're at an equilibrium right now for the level of tensions. They're, they're you know, higher than they were several years ago. I, I don't foresee any rethinking of the sanctions on their major tech companies and their AI companies and so forth. There's the you know, unethical labor conditions that they have that also is, impacts the regula- regulations of their companies. They don't see that going away or us shifting policy. I, I've actually heard recently a couple of Congress folks calling for rethinking some of the policies towards China, but I, I just can't imagine that happening. Um, mm-hmm. Just given the wide scale IP theft and we keep finding, more, you know, there seems to be right. some new data breach linked back to, to China. So I, I can't imagine that happening uh, anytime soon. But really the, the unknown is China's behavior towards Taiwan. And that for many people has always been like, oh, that's a distant future. I, I think more, and the government for sure is planning for that more now. And I think many of the companies are starting to think that what would what would happen then? Again, I think you know, Russia invading Ukraine was a forcing function on that, uh, but I think some of the other aspects of U.S.-China relations have further raised the concern. Yeah. All right. Interesting times. Andrea Little Limbago, thanks so much for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. Be sure to check out this weekend's Research Saturday and my conversation with researchers from Sentinel One. They're sharing their work, Sandman APT, a mystery group targeting telcos with a Luigit toolkit. That's Research Saturday. Check it out. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at cyberwire at n2k.com. Your feedback helps us ensure we're delivering the information and insights that help keep you a step ahead in the rapidly changing world of cybersecurity. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like The CyberWire are part of the daily intelligence routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector. 
as well as the critical security teams supporting the Fortune 500 and many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. This episode was produced by Liz Irvin and senior producer Jennifer Iben. Our mixer is Trey Hester with original music by Elliot Peltzman. The show was written by our editorial staff. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.